Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. joy to be speaking with you this evening. As many of you will know, we've been doing a series on the I am sayings of Jesus. So Jesus in his own words. Um, and some of the ones we've covered so far, I think I may be um, wrapping this series up, are the good shepherd, the bread of life, the light of the world, and so on. I feel they're slightly more tangible than what I have to speak about this evening, so I feel like I've got a bit of a short straw. So you will have to be patient with me. I have, I am the way and the truth and the life, which many of you will notice is actually, hey, hi, is actually three I ams. So uh, we could be here for a while. I wonder how many of you are familiar with this verse, whether you've read it recently, but if you had to think about um, its context, who Jesus is speaking to, why he might be using this language, all of that sort of thing, what you might, what might immediately spring to mind. Who would you imagine Jesus is speaking to? Perhaps the Jews, perhaps a Roman centurion, perhaps some religious leaders. It feels to me a bit like a make up your mind sort of verse. No one comes to the Father except through me. It does make Jesus sound a little bit like a heavenly bouncer. You know, if your name's not down, you're not coming in. Um, And it makes me feel, sort of pictures, causes me to picture Jesus as a sort of divine obstacle that we need to get past if we want to get to the Father, if we want to experience what he's been talking about. Um, If you've been a Christian for some years, it it might not be exactly a fridge magnet verse, um, but it's probably a memory verse. If you were a kid in Sunday school at some point, I'm guessing this is one of those ones you had to learn. And, uh, you know, if you ever, anyone here ever did, what's it called, the Bible drill? Oh, you're going to pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Okay, anyway, your secret's safe with me. Um, Some people might also feel, this is a bit of an awkward verse, this whole, are you being serious, Jesus? No one, literally no one gets the Father except through you. You know, especially as liberal Londoners, we don't really like that language. It's a little bit uncomfortable, it feels like an embarrassing uncle sort of verse, so we'd rather move on from rather swiftly. But one of the best things about gathering together about this, and when we start to look into our Bibles and we start to rummage around to see what we can find in there, is that the context is so very different from what we might be expecting. This verse is set in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with his friends. Uh, They've been having a meal together. Jesus has washed their feet. And it's a really intimate setting. People that he knows well, um, men that have spent probably the last three years with him. It's very intimate. It's very personal. But it hasn't been an easy meal. So they've been celebrating Passover together. And there's been this sort of uh, undercurrent through some of the things that Jesus has been saying. At one point, he lets them know that Judas is going to be uh, betraying him, which obviously, you know, if there were just 12 of us in the room, and uh, who did I pick on this morning? Rachel, who am I going to pick on now? Ah, Abby. So, you know, what if it's just 12 of us in the room, and I say, so guys, just to let you know, Something terrible is going to be happening to me just a few weeks' time. I want you to know that Abby is going to be betraying me. Not good. I know it has to happen, but Abby. 
So, okay, so at some point, Abby leaves. Now, some of the other disciples, Abby's the treasurer, and they might be thinking, new pair of sandals she was wearing recently. I don't know how she paid for those. And they might be wondering how uh, integrous she's been with the accounts. So perhaps there's a bit of suspicion around Abby slash Judas. Um, but the next bombshell is Jesus saying that actually Peter is going to deny him. And uh, we all know Peter. We love Peter. One minute, he's top of the class, knows all the answers. The next minute, it's like, get behind me, Satan. So, you know, Peter's a bit of a mixed bag, but I reckon he was fun to be with. You know, you want someone else who's going to be the first one to get out of the boat, right? You don't want it to have to be you. So good for Peter. And then Jesus says this about him. So great meal, but awkward. And um, at this point, Jesus starts to unpack some things to them. He really gets in and addresses this. So we're going to look at John 14 right now. It's quite a long passage. If you're not familiar with it, even if you are, it can sound a bit riddlish. So stick with it. This is not the time to check who's playing at Glastonbury right now. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. All this I have spoken while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. 
So our verse for the purpose of today is verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But as we've seen, context is everything. This verse, in theory, might be an evangelist's dream scripture. It's a verse that's been used to draw a line in the sand that people cross over to receive salvation. But if we're using it to keep people at arm's length from God until they've prayed that prayer, I think we can see from the context that we're overreaching. Jesus wasn't preaching to the lost at this instant. He was engaged with his friends, much as he might be with us in this room this evening. He was describing a relationship between him and his father, between the Father and the Holy Spirit, and how we might become a part of that dance that he was describing. Because there's so much more going on in this passage than just a dogmatic statement about who's in and who's out. There is a much deeper challenge for you and I. So how does this relate to our context? What lens are we coming at when we look at scripture like this? I think most of us would agree that our culture feels incredibly divided right now. It feels full of uh, division. It feels very opinionated. And uh, there's a lot, of course, that's been created by uh, Brexit. You know, when you have a binary vote about something as complicated as that, it only amplifies those kinds of divisions between Leave voters and Remainers, between London and the rest of the country, and between rich and poor, even between the USA and England, who, of course, will triumph on Tuesday. In London, we see a very liberal culture where anything goes, really. Uh, our general, the mantra for most of our colleagues would be, if it feels good, do it. There's little check on what we do. But sooner or later, what we do and whether we choose to do something just because it feels good will come into contact and often into violent contact with somebody else who's just choo choosing to do what they feel like doing. We've seen recently a, a violent assault of a lesbian couple on a bus because someone chose to assault them in that way. We see children choosing to stab someone on the way home from school because it feels good to them in their context to do something in that way. Um, we've seen milkshakes thrown at people whose views we might find objectionable, but someone has felt that it was good to do that. So in our, in our liberalism, in our willing to tolerate anything, have we really become more tolerant? Have we really become more understanding of each other? Or have we actually become more legalistic, more polarized, and more entrenched in our identities? Uh, that might be Muslim or Christian, black or white, gay or straight. And all of those labels are important. But most of the time, those things bring division. They're not words that speak to our commonalities. They're not words that create common ground for us, where we might see what we can do together, what we share. Generally, they're labels that bring about division and uh, co cause conflict between most of us. Perhaps surprisingly, much of the New Testament actually addresses issues of division and of identity about who's in and who's out. In the book of Acts, which we love for its stories of power, we also see a story of confrontation between Jews and Gentiles, between persecuted Christians and powerful Romans. And even we see Peter and Paul arguing over what it's good to eat and uh, how to plant a church. Elsewhere, we see Paul write to the church at Corinth to acknowledge the foolishness of the gospel. We know that the message we preach is that Christ was crucified. Paul calls it a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles who were asking, is this, is this cross really the solution to a broken world. 
Is, it, is the cross the symbol that you would choose when you're thinking about talking to your neighbors or your colleagues and you're wondering how to tell them about your faith? Is the cross, is the death of a man what you would choose to communicate to them the power and the presence of God? I would choose to do things very differently. I was thinking how great it would be to have Jesus on a big white horse. It could even be a unicorn and he's wearing a crown, and he's got that awesome um, Stormzy bulletproof Union Jack vest on. I guess the Union Jack thing maybe is a bit provocative. But he would deal with Brexit. He would make sure we win on Tuesday, and that would be my Jesus. But that is not obviously how God has chosen to deal with the problems that we see in the world. The choices that I make, the way that I identify myself, who I consider to be in and out, what I consider to be acceptable or unacceptable, they're often so far removed from the way that God thinks, the way that God acts, the way that I've seen him move in the past. But perhaps it's only when we think of it like that. What is our culture's way? What is their truth? What does life look like to them? that I start to realize that my way, my truth, and my life actually has very little to do with the way and the truth and the life of Jesus. The challenge for us in this whole passage is that it does create both an obstacle and an invitation. First, the obstacle, because we're trying to get to God, we're, but we're confronted with the problem of our own sin, and we have no solution to that. If you have one, you're welcome to have the mic after me. I have found no solution to my own sin. Neither liberalism, do whatever the hell you like, or legalism, just stick to the rules and work harder, neither of them leads us to the kind of fulfillment or flourishing that was meant for the human soul. Secondly, there's an invitation. Jesus isn't a heavenly bouncer. He isn't standing between us and the Father to limit access, but to make access possible. For all its apparent foolishness, he's provided the solution to the problem of sin in his death. And the only obstacle to us entering into the fullness of what we were made for is our willingness to give up our way, our truth, our life. So let's take another look at this passage and consider again what Jesus had to say. He starts by saying, I am the way. Jesus was responding to Thomas when he says this. We call him Doubting Thomas, but I think Honest Thomas is probably a better name for him. Jesus has been talking about preparing a place for his followers, a home, a dwelling place for them, his father's house. He's reminding them of many of the things that he's spoken with them about. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I don't know about you, but this sounds like me. Lord, I don't know where you're going. I don't know what you're doing. So how do I know how to get there? What am I supposed to do next? I think many of us are asking those kinds of questions. And Jesus' response is to acknowledge that deep sense of hunger that we have. I mean, it, it is such a privilege to worship in the way that we get to worship here and express that hunger that we don't just pretend that everything's okay, that we get to express that sense of hunger, that sense of homelessness that Jesus identifies in his disciples. He reminds them that they are not like orphans. They are not to be left alone. And I think many of us fear that. We fear being left alone. We fear being abandoned. Jesus seeks to assure us that there is hope, 
that in spite of all the confusion and uncertainty, whether they or we are going to betray him, deny him, or just forget all the promises that he's made, that God is with us, that God is here. Most religions, most five-step programs, self-help gurus require us to follow rules, to make ourselves right. But Jesus is reminding his friends again and again in this passage that it's in knowing that we are loved, in knowing that we have salvation, in knowing that we've been made righteous, that we find ourselves doing the right things. I think sometimes we worry that a message of welcome, inclusion, invitation, and grace, that they somehow lower the bar, that oh no, they're going to let anyone in. Well, you know they let us in. So we can afford to lower the drawbridge and let everybody else in. If you spend any time with this man, Jesus, you will know that it is his kindness that brings us to repentance. Somehow feeling bad about ourselves is not difficult. But receiving his love, resting in his grace, believing what he says about us, that's not so easy. But that's the point at which our lives begin to change. Because it's this man, Jesus, it's this foolish cross that has made a way where there is no other way. It's not that you can't find happiness elsewhere. I confess to deep happiness at the bottom of a tub of salted caramel ice cream. Anyone with me on that? Thank you, got a witness. Uh, but it's by the breaking of Jesus' body on the cross and the remaking of his body through the resurrection that God has not just given us happiness, but God has made a way for our lives to be put back together. So I am the way, I am the truth. Elsewhere in John's gospel, Jesus tells us, if you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That is a pretty powerful statement, especially because in verse 17, Jesus reassures his friends that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, will live in us. So we have access to the truth, not the changing whims of our culture, not the changing whims of my moods and my opinion, but the timeless truth that God's spirit reveals to us. But we do have to know the truth for it to set us free. And I know another saying, and this one is not found in scripture, but I think it's equally as divine. First, the truth will hurt, and then it will set you free. That sucks. The truth that Jesus tells us often hurts before it heals. But Jesus is promising that you and I can know freedom. And many of us will be able to put up our hand and say, I was like this, and now I'm like this. I used to talk like this, but now I talk like that. I used to think like this, but now I think like that. Because many of us have experienced freedom. You know, I bet we want a whole lot more, and that's good. Keep going. More will come. But many of us can testify to the presence of God in our lives that when we allowed God to deal with our hurt, he set us free and brought us freedom. The problem is... We just so often don't want to hear the truth because it does hurt. Sometimes it's very ouchy. And we might say to God, you mean I have to forgive that person before I can know peace? You mean it's my fear that's fueling my addictions? You mean it's my anger that's keeping me from intimacy? These are hard truths. Um, could you pop the slide up on the board with the Rachel Held Evans quote? Rachel Held Evans writes this, there's no ladder to holiness to climb, no self-improvement plan to follow. It's just death and resurrection over and over again, day after day, as God reaches down into our deepest graves, 
and with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, rests us from our pride, our apathy, our fear, our prejudice, our anger, our hurt, and our despair. This is what God does. When he does that with you, what's your reaction, really? Most of us, you experience that. Our reaction isn't to come up with dogmatic statements. It's not to look for the divine between what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. When we experience God like this, when we open up our lives to this and recognize that he's doing that kind of work in us, we fall on our knees. We say, God, I just want to be where you are, wherever that is, whatever that costs me. I want you, Lord. And if we will do this, his spirit will work in us. He reveals our falseness. He reveals our attachments. He reveals our idols. And that's what hurts. But this is the necessary work of God. And in doing so, he gently and lovingly removes the crap in our lives, the cheap and the superficial. And in repentance and surrender, he exchanges it for mercy and grace. So where does that lead us to? I am the way and the truth. And Jesus said, I am the life. This is my Greek moment. You know, everyone has to have one of those in the sermon. A little bit of Greek or Hebrew. Just chucking this in. Uh, In the Bible, there are three different Greek words for life. One refers to the body, from where we get the word biology. One refers to the soul, but really kind of combines body, mind, and will, from where we get the word psychology. But one refers to a very different quality of life, an eternal, uncreated, divine life only possessed by God. But this is the life that Jesus is offering. You can go back to John 10, and he says that he has abundant life for us, life in all its fullness. That's what he's talking about, experiencing the life of God in us. In chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Literally, that is not just I'm going to make you feel good for half an hour. That is, I'm going to bring you out of the grave. When he promises life, he is talking about the divine presence of God. So it's not just an improved life. It's not something we can muster up with good scripture memorization or a nice app, but that would be good. We're talking about the presence of God, and if we want to be people of his presence, and I'm guessing that's what we're here for, we need to do whatever it takes to get more of God inside of us. What makes for life in all its fullness is the person of Jesus through the indwelling of his spirit. There couldn't be anyone more real, more close up, more loving, more powerful, and yet we don't always experience him in that way. He offers us life, but yet For us, it seems that it's life that often gets in the way. Uh, Have you got the Dallas Willard quote? Dallas Willard puts it like this. The most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. That's what will take you into eternity. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That's the most important thing to know about you. You think you have to be somewhere else or accomplish something more to find peace, but it's right here. God has yet to bless someone except where they actually are. Your soul is not just something that lives on after your body dies. It's the most important thing about you. It is your life. We spend so much of our life distracted and preoccupied with everything, really, that has nothing to do with our soul. But that's the kind of stuff that really poisons our soul, that really dampens our soul, silences our soul, and really sickens and disintegrates our soul. We need to pay more attention to our souls, to our eternity. And Jesus is offering something like that here. 
And that's why the rest of this whole passage is so important. Because throughout the surrounding verses, we hear Jesus unpacking and explaining this to his disciples. He's saying, if you really want to know life, you have to get to know me. Even when things get difficult, you need to know that I am with you, no matter what. And for most of us, it's the no matter what that we want to know, right? Because Jesus has done that thing where he's just gone, you know, if you see me, you see the Father, this is awesome, this is great, and then I'm just going to be going off to die soon, which is obviously not so great. But he promises them that he doesn't leave them alone. He doesn't leave them as orphans. He never leaves us. He says, I will be with you in the valley of the shadow of death. Never has he left us. Never will he leave us. Not as orphans, not as homeless people. Not just with a distant memory of maybe the good times we once had, the kids camp you maybe went to, the fantastic prayer meeting perhaps that you had or whatever. All of those things are great, but that's not what God has more for you than that. Those are a taste of the more that he has for you. And he doesn't want those good times to be distant memories for you. He leaves with us his spirit so that we can experience his presence. And it's like treasure in jars of clay. We unfortunately don't get transformed into Jesus, like overnight or even in two weeks or even probably in 20 years because I've been a Christian for a long time and I'm so not Jesus yet. But we know that I'm never not going to be a jar of clay, but I have this treasure in me. And uh, yeah, a whole other story of my journey and the things that I've been through and the valley of the shadow of death that I've walked in. But I know that I have this treasure inside this jar of clay. All of this that Jesus is talking about is about a new identity. These weren't Jews being given a new set of rules. They were not pagans being given a new God to follow. What we're talking about is not a prescription for a new kind of liberalism or a new kind of legalism which is often where we slip up. We go, Jesus, I can do anything now because you're my savior and I've been saved by grace. Or we go, yeah, you know what? If you don't believe this stuff, you're not part of the club and you don't get to experience it. Jesus cuts straight down the middle. When he talks to his friends, he's talking about a whole new way of life. He's talking about dwelling together. He's not talking about just turning up once of a week on Sunday, but he's talking about setting up home together. He's talking about his presence. And this is about doing life together with him. The challenge then for all of us as we wrap this up, get your worship hat on again, is that Jesus, Jesus means what he says. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could read the Bible like we read most books and to go, yeah, that is so good. I'm going to put that on Insta and I'm going to get so many likes and this is good. And then a week later, like, We've so moved on. I mean, that was great then, but I mean, check this out now. That's not Jesus. Jesus means what he says. Jesus demands to be taken seriously. We were talking about it this morning and just saying, whatever questions you have about Jesus, you can bring them. Whatever challenges you have about the church, you can bring them. But Jesus has skin in the game. He loved us enough to give his life for us. And so he deserves a listen. He deserves an audience. He deserves your time and attention. And if you will come and engage with him, he will most certainly engage with you. Let's get ready for worship. If you don't know Jesus like this, 
then um, I hope you know that this invitation still stands. You can meet Jesus. You can meet the Father. But I imagine that most of us have, uh, are looking for a third chance, a fourth chance, a 44th chance. And that is all good because that is what we're here for. I mean, think if we don't wake up every day and go, Jesus, I need to give my life to you again. I'm not sure that we're, uh, we're, um, we're doing this right. Especially, I think, sometimes if we are just holding our lives together, it's a really good time to say that my way, my truth, my life isn't working. You know, however long you've been a Christian for, two weeks, two years, 20 years, there's more. There's more for you. And sometimes we say that and we think the more means more hype, you know, more ministry, more mission. But I'm telling you, I mean, there's more in the night for you. There's more at 3 a.m. for you. There's more in the midst of your mourning. There's more in the midst of your brokenness. Because anything that I've learned is that the things of life crack us open. And in the midst of the difficulties, we imagine that we imagine that the presence of difficulty is the absence of God but actually so often these things crack us open and they make more room for God so I encourage you we're going to worship a little bit more we're going to pray a little bit more we're going to do more stuff SP's in the game so it's all going to be good and um, I just welcome you to stand and keep on doing business with the Lord I mean we know he's here this evening Lord, we invite you just to increase your presence right now. We ask you to do that because we want to make more room for you. I want you to enlarge the capacity of my heart for your goodness. I want you to enlarge the capacity of my brain for more of your goodness. Lord, I want you to enlarge the capacity of my body for more of your grace, more of your goodness. Enlarge the capacity of my relationships for more of you. Enlarge my work capacity, Lord, for more of you. And particularly for those of us that feel cracked open right now, would you come and would you meet with us? Would you come and would you remove the, remove the poison, Jesus, sometimes that our culture inflicts on us? Break the power of the lies that we believe. Break the power of the agreements that we've made. The spirit of truth, would you, would you rest on us? Would you move among us? And would we hear your truth? Would we recognize your truth? Would we breathe in your truth right now? Would we receive your truth, Jesus? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.